Hi. I got a tape I want to play. There are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. government shut down because they could not agree about the passage of certain bills. But that seems crazy, right? Thank God things like that can't happen now. Uh, the Challenger left the Earth once more, and Dr. Catherine D. Sullivan became the first U.S. woman to walk in space. Reverend Desmond Tutu won the Nobel Peace Prize, and Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi was killed in her home by her own bodyguards, even as the IRA bombed a London hotel where Merritt Thatcher was staying, pretty much summing up the turbulent times. You need something more tranquil? Okay, the Monterey Bay Aquarium opened for the first time. I've been there. It's lovely. And now I feel relaxed and ready to face the wild ride that is October of 1984. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McGuinney, and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. How are you, Scott? Hello, Drew. How are you tonight? Um, first of all, uh, we are going to back up uh, just, a, just a month or two, just a couple of months here. Uh, we missed a movie. You can't really blame us. It was a very tiny release. A film called The Jigsaw Man. In return for betraying his country, they removed his past, destroyed his reputation, and finally, they even took away his life. Welcome to the KGB. I'm So begins a sinister mission. And one man's fight to stay alive in the deadliest game of all. Michael Caine is the Jigsaw Man. If this had been a Mike Hodges film with Michael Caine, this probably would be a film we all knew. Terrence Young made some good Bond films, but a lot of times he was kind of on autopilot. And British autopilot in this era was still a lot better than like J. Lee Thompson, American autopilot. You know? Well, and he stepped into it late because this was a Mike Hodges collaboration with Caine. And... I think it just feels shabby and unfinished. It's sort of a very um, mild-mannered riff on Face Off, where it's a uh, British agent who defects to Russia, where they do plastic surgery on him to give him a new face, and then they send him back to England because they need something that he didn't get before he left. It was who the very first person to ever come up with this premise was of, like, I have a new face. We've seen it so many times, but it is such a cool crime story a hook if, if, especially for uh fans of early bond it's a bummer that you can't say oh and here's this good little spy film by terrence young that you've never heard of. i wish it was that it's not so let's jump in uh the first film that we're going to do this month feels like we are neck deep in the 80s now this is as 80s as a movie gets scott what did you think of thief of hearts thief of hearts 
two thieves that be as one. That's what I have to say. <laughs> Don't think that's the theme. <laughs> Thief of part, I need you, I need you. Steven Bauer of Scarface and Barbara Williams of literally nothing else. Um, <laughs> in a film, in a film directed by the writer of The Blue Lagoon and An Officer and a Gentleman. Yeah. It's about a thief who steals a woman's diary. You thought I was going to say heart. And then reads about her licentious dreams and wishes. <laughs> and then he woos her and beds her. It's really skeezy. It's like a red shoe diary, but only one shoe. This is very, very early Simpson Bruckheimer. And it is super slick the way their films are. Yeah, but it's are. their throw in darts. So this is when they're still trying to figure out what their style is. And this is basically the dawn of the erotic thriller. That was not a genre, really. You sounded like you were going to sing. It no. is dawning <laughs> of the age of the erotic thriller. The age of the erotic thriller. Yeah. Um, and so this this genre is kind of just getting figured out. And, dude, Simpson Bruckheimer definitely were guys that tried to make that genre happen and, and really bought into the MTV soundtrack and the super glossy music video lighting and storytelling as montage. All of the things that are going to become their trademarks, you can see the early versions of them here. This is them kind of revving up to the Simpson Bruckheimer we're going to get more of over the course of the decade. Douglas Day Stewart. Yeah. The artiste. Talk about his skill behind the camera. Uh, yeah, no. N no. It really feels like a Hallmark Channel movie, which is weird because Hallmark Channel didn't exist in 1984. <laughs> yeah. As I understand it, his background was that he was somewhat autobiographically connected to Officer and a Gentleman. This doesn't feel like it's connected to any real world experience or it's not drawn from it. This is just Stephen Bauer is a cipher. Like he's literally a, a, a device, basically. He's often really good at supporting roles. To be fair to Mr. Bauer and Miss Williams, this screenplay is like dust bunnies. There's nothing there. Uh, I do like the supporting cast. There's Christine Ebersole. There's George Went, John Getz, the evil bastard from The Fly. And then a very early David Caruso. As Buddy Calamara. What's crazy is how early David Caruso kind of had the David Caruso shtick down, because... Man, when he's supposed to be intense in this movie, he goes up to 11 right away, and it's David Caruso, as you recognize him completely from later things. Hey, fuck you. Let's move on, Drew, to a powerful, important film. It's Linda Blair in Savage Streets. It started off as an innocent prank that erupted in savage violence. I'm gonna kill him! I'm gonna kill him! Brenda, you can't take the whole world on by yourself. You don't know anything. <laughs> Linda Blair in Savage Streets, where the only law is an eye for an eye. This may well be the very first example I have ever seen of Chekhov's crossbow during the opening scene of a movie. 
where as soon as they're walking down Hollywood Boulevard and they stop and they're looking in that sporting goods window and she goes, hey, that crossbow is real. I'm like, somebody's getting shot with a crossbow. I don't even know this movie. And I guarantee somebody. Sure enough. So I hats off to Danny Steinman for at the very least fulfilling the promise he makes in the first few minutes of this film. Between Savage Streets and Friday the 13th Part 5, Danny Steinman could not direct Poop to Stink. He's horrible. Now, I saw that credit on his resume, but I'm very confused about that because that can't be a thing because we just saw the final chapter of Friday the 13th. That means it's over. That, I don't know what you're talking about. I do know this is the guy that made The Unseen. The Unclean is better title. That filthy Stephen First film that we saw. Yeah, he knows his niche and he wallows in it. Uh, Linda Blair is a high school student whose deaf sister is terrorized. I don't even want to get into what happens to her, his sister. Drew, you take over. It's exactly what you think it is. And it's uh, young Linnea Quigley in a very, very early performance as the deaf sister. And yes, she is terrorized by some thugs who Linda Blair and her friends pissed off one night. And here's the big question about this movie. Say there was going to be another Friday the 13th. Would this be a good audition for it? I'd hire this guy to shoot like industrial videos at an abattoir, perhaps. I am fascinated by and horrified by Linda Blair's career. Just because you're a decent or a very good actress when you're 14 or 15, that doesn't always translate to when you're 40. She very frequently in these movies gets cast as the tough girl who is super street smart. And part of that just makes me crack up because she's so chubby faced and she's there is something ridiculous about her being the tough girl in all these. And, you know, no disrespect, but it's, it's silly. It's just very much like I spit on your grave or miss 45, but not, not as interesting as either of those films. Well, once it finally kicks in, in that last like 15, 20 minutes, the movie kind of gets a little head of steam going, but it really takes forever for her to finally fight back. And there's a lot of awful stuff. There's a moment in this where they, track down her friend and her friend has her wedding dress and they pick her up and they throw her off of a freeway overpass and the bad guy leans over the overpass and yells here comes the bride and she's all drenched in blood if you're hearing that right now and you're like i'm i'm on board savage streets is for you let's now move on to another genre film that might be even more tasteless it comes from a celebrated Italian schlockmaster, several of whose films I enjoy, but I am not a fan of Lucio Fulci's The New York Ripper. New York City, a town of sights and erotic delights. Oh yes, you like it, baby. A sultry setting for the sinister crimes of a crazed sex killer. A master of murder committing countless sins against unsuspecting victims. The New York Ripper. Somebody saw Friday the 13th in Maniac and said, Lucio, would you do this? And he went to New York and he shot it. And it's very misogynistic. Is this, this, this. It is not arguable. There are movies where we could discuss the sexual politics and I could be wrong and you could... No, not on this one. <laughs> you know what? We'll, we'll, we'll talk about Body Devil a little later. But... This movie, when you talk about the moral panic that set in around slasher films, it's because every now and then somebody would walk into a theater playing something like this and come out the other side going, oh, no, that can't happen. 
no, that can't be going on. <laughs> yeah, and I think it touches. I think it touches on a disconnect for Fulci is that when he deals in like supernatural, otherworldly, then he can get away with a lot. But when you're dealing in a completely real world, a lot of his proclivities are just kind of gross. Oh, it's super graphic. This is one of the very few movies that even after the UK kind of rolled back its video nasties restrictions and let a lot of movies that have been banned originally go through either with moderate cuts or with no cuts, this one just stayed on the list. They were like, uh, okay, everybody in except you, fuck you. You're awful. So New York Ripper truly distasteful. Yeah, I don't think that we've ever even had the full uncut Italian version here in America. And in some cases, that'd be like, ooh, I want to track that. No, not this one. No, I'm good. <laughs> Drew, that, if that's not obscure enough, let's dig a little deeper. Scott, hey, did you think we were done with 3D, Scott? I thought we were. Apparently, this thing was shot in 3D, which makes no sense because 90% of it is nonstop blather. <laughs> Drew, let's talk about... Silent madness, a terrifying, suspense-filled voyage into the dark places of the mind. Inside your head, the screaming never stops. Silent madness. Oh, I wish it was silent. I wish nobody spoke. This is one of the chattiest, most loquacious and verbose horror films you will ever see was shot in 3d was not released in 3d this is an ultra deep cut for the hard hardcore horror fans and it's terrible drew new doctor has started work at a uh, a mental institution there is a clerical error that leads to them releasing the craziest psychopathic son of a bitch in the entire building and the whole movie is the killer is out there. She's trying to convince people that he's out there. And the other guys are trying to stop her from convincing people that he's out there. If that sounds like there is a single moment in this movie that is exciting or interesting, then I am overselling it. Now we're going to move on to an obscurity that my friends and I were addicted to. Oh, I don't think it's as obscure as you think it is. At last, a terrifying movie where you don't have to wait for the good parts because it's nothing but good parts all the very best parts from the greatest terror films of all time terror in the aisles it's only a movie but it's more than enough rated r now let me ask you this drew aside from it being an eclectic mix of horror and thriller clips have did you notice a lot of universal titles in this. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's it's pretty close to an infomercial in terms of just setting up, hey, here's some title. Now that home video exists, you should see some of this shit. I, some of them, it's a stretch like that they made it in there. And I always found it strange how prevalent the clips for Nighthawks are. I know. Nighthawks is all over that. And that is some I, – I would – wonder what deal was struck to get that much Nighthawks placement. But on the other hand, as far as horror fans go, this is close as we got to like, that's entertainment. You know, you have Donald Pleasance and Nancy Allen. Their narrative is fantastic. I, they're just kind of talking about the appeal of horror and why we like to watch them and how it's safe in there. And there's all different interesting theories about why we like to be scared. It's weird that it's not available as a disc by itself. It's been treated basically like a bonus item when it's been put out. It's been dropped onto various other movies' releases, I think, the last time. Halloween 2 
And Terror in the Isles is included as a bonus feature on that Halloween 2. And of course, I mean Rick Rosenthal's Halloween 2, not Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. The weirdest part of this whole thing to me is that this came out at a point where Universal was starting to back out of the business, where they felt like Videodrome and The Thing and Cat People had been expensive movies that had not delivered what they had hoped they would. And it's more like, hey, we gave it a shot. Here's what we did. Uh, Watch some of them. We're done. Terror in the Isles and It Came from Hollywood both had pretty heavy rotation in my basement when I was a kid. I enjoy this more than I enjoy It Came From Hollywood. I think it's a better put-together package overall. And speaking of packages, let's talk about four guys and their dicks. When you know what you want, you'd better know what's hot. Hi, baby brother. And know what's not. When you'll do anything to get what you want. Thank you, ma'am. All that matters to you is sex, isn't it? Baby, it's time for hot moves. Oh, is it Boner O'Clock again? This is the kid, uh, the dude who stars in this, Michael uh, Zorak. If you look him up on Twitter, seems like a lovely, lovely guy who has daughters and lives this great life in New York and is involved in theater and politics. God bless him. I fucking detest every time he shows up in a movie in the 80s. It's not his fault. It is the fact that he is cast as the fat, gross dude. So they always make sure they ladle on the fat, gross jokes. I feel bad for him from about 15, 20 minutes in. In everything he's in, I feel bad for him. As these movies went away, he kind of receded. And I think it's because he got so connected to private school and this. And uh, I, it makes me wince. It's hard to sit through. Uh, now, let's move on to a film that couldn't be more different than Hot Moves. It is the Oscar-winning documentary, <laughs> the absolutely fantastic The Times of Harvey Milk. <laughs> I can't believe I can't believe we, that's our transition. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, you, dude, you write, you write the order. I, I make up the segues. I yeah, don't know I what to I really didn't even think about that you one. You really oh hung me out to dry. We could have put the Harvey Milk documentary later in the show or earlier. All right. You're like the guy in Free Solo I'm on the front of that mountain uh, making yeah. that transition. That is right, just, and I'm like, how do I go from a sleazy boob comedy to a documentary? Jump, of- dude. Just jump. <laughs> place called Alfie's. And the reason for all this merriment and gaiety, if you pardon the pun, is a man standing to my right, the first gay supervisor elected in San Francisco. His name is Harvey Milk. Harvey said that if anyone solved the dog shit problem in the city, that they could be elected mayor. That campaign was anything but normal. <laughs> Somebody said he's, he's gay. I thought, holy Christ, how are we going to go back to our union and go back to where we work and tell guys that we supported a fruit? You could hear where he was coming from. He was coming from uh, people positions. He wasn't only for gay rights. And why am I homosexual if I'm affected by role models? I should have been a heterosexual. And no offense meant, but if teachers are going to affect you as role models, there'd be a lot of nuns running around the streets today.
I'll say this. I think this is one of the best films that we've reviewed on the show so far. Full stop. Not just best documentaries. One of the best movies. Before you even get to, and for those who do know the Harvey Milk story, the tragedy is dealt with so beautifully in this. And it's handled so carefully that I, I think it's hard to sit through, but it's also it's it's very powerful and I think cathartic to sit through. If you don't know the Harvey Milk story, all the stuff before tragedy ever becomes part of this film is Amazing. And I think would have been our first gay president. I think this guy was a born politician. There was a gift that he had, which was he could listen to what you said, not only hear it, but then talk to you in a way that let you know he really understood the concern underneath it and that he was going to find a solution. That is a gift. That is an innate skill that politicians train to try and get good at. And regardless of being a gay politician, he was just a great politician. Easily one of the most compelling documentaries we've covered on the show, and it deservedly won uh, Best Documentary this year. Now, let us move on. Drew, did you know that Wikipedia defines a plowman's lunch as an English cold meal based on bread, cheese, and onions? which sounds pretty dry and starchy to me. Just like this film, The Plowman's Lunch. Slam dunk. Bam, it took a lot of shoe leather, Mom, but I made it. It's about a BBC reporter in a film produced by the BBC who is writing a book about the then very current Falkland Islands War. Ben gets embroiled in all kind of romantic entanglements that I couldn't care less about. And occasionally a very young and awesome Tim Curry pops up and keeps me from falling asleep. Tim Curry is terrific in this as another journalist who I think is a brilliant example of a guy who knows the game and is very good at playing it and is watching his friend drown. Jonathan Price, I think, is good in this. The love stuff, I don't think it's love at all. I think he is a manipulator. I think he's a user. I think he's a social climber. And a lot of this is him using this person to get to this person. It's very much about how he is trying to become the person that I think Tim Curry is so naturally. It's interesting. I thought it was good. I I wouldn't call it a bad film, but I did not find it interesting. I was really kind of bored. I think it's a snapshot of a moment that I didn't live through and have very little connection to. To other men, it was the end of the world. To Jack McCann, it was the end of the rainbow. The true story of a man richer than Getty, stranger than Hughes. This is only a man. A man is made up of desires. Understand his desires. You understand the man. There's no deal with Jack McCann. Gene Hackman, Rutger Hauer, Teresa Russell, Mickey Rourke, Joe Pesci. In a Nicholas Rogue film, Eureka. Eureka! This is a weird movie. Two hour plus adventure, semi-mystery character study about the world's wealthiest man, as played by Gene Hackman, how he got that way. His daughter, played by the fantastic Teresa Russell. I am hot and cold on Nicholas Rogue, and I think this is a really underappreciated movie. I am a big Nick Rogue fan sometimes. Um, Man Who Fell to Earth was the first DVD I bought. This was one of the few Nick Rogue films I had not seen yet. When he passed away recently, I specifically held off to watch it for this episode, knowing this is it. This is my last Nick Rogue film. Man, it could not have been more Nick Rogue. And 
I really enjoyed it. You know his stuff better than I do. Would you call this one of his more, like, at mainstream or accessible? The first, like, 30 minutes, the myth of how he became rich and found the gold and is told in such lysergic, almost hallucinatory style. I don't know if it's meant to be real. I don't know if it's meant to be this crazy dream. And then when the film makes its hard cut to him now, it turns into a different movie suddenly. I love the fact that Joe Pesci is one of the least wild elements in this film. He's a gangster, but he's the one that is trying to present the case. And then things ramp up over the course of this film. And part of it is just that Gene Hackman, who reminds me a lot of Daniel Plainview. Yeah. If you are a big fan of There Will Be Blood, I bet you'll dig Eureka. He is an irascible, hateful, misanthropic shit. His daughter, Teresa Russell, is uh, engaged to Rucker Hauer. Um, and he they're both fantastic Hackman has major problems with Rucker Hauer for many different reasons. We'll let you discover those. My only problem with the movie, and I think it's a kind of a large one, after a lot goes down and there's kind of like this denouement where Teresa Russell in a courtroom scene is giving a monologue that runs, I'm not kidding, a good 12 minutes. And man, that sucks so much energy out of the movie. It is such a weirdly structured film, too, because I really thought In the House was the end of the movie. And then there's 30 more minutes of film after that, which is very strange. And then you realize that the the movie settles into exactly what Hackman's character was afraid of, which is that when he was gone, it was just going to be vultures picking his bones in a courtroom somewhere. The real tragedy of the film is that he just can't enjoy it. Dude, shut up and enjoy it. Uh, MGMA, when they put this out in the U.S., uh, really did abandon this movie. This film made total, its entire run in the U.S., less than $200,000. That just blows my mind. that You can have a Gene Hackman movie by Nicholas Rogue. And it can just be treated like toilet paper by the company that puts it out. But I had never seen it. I'm really glad I did. And I would definitely say, especially if you miss Nicholas Rogue, if you are sad that he's gone, this is one of the ones that is not widely discussed or celebrated. And man, it will give you a pure hit of him. Drew, now let's move on to one of the most 80s, 80s films you'll ever see. And I'll tell you why. It's got Terry Garr, Peter Weller, Corey Haim, Robert Downey Jr., and Sarah Jessica Parker. Let's talk about Firstborn. Everything was fine before he showed up. No, I You might have been fine, but I wasn't fine. Jake was the first one to sense something was wrong. I am your mother. You don't talk to me that way. And act like it. Now he's the only one who can save her. I saw this in the movies with my cousin, and all I remembered was the speech that the gym teacher gives the teenagers about (laughs) how you have to towel yourself properly or you'll get fungus in your junk. Whoa. Firstborn is a very TV movie-ish movie about an abusive new boyfriend. Told from the teenager's perspective is Christopher Collett. Really good performance, I got to say. 
And Peter Weller moves in as his mom, Terry Garr's new boyfriend. And like a lot of films we've dealt with in the earlier 80s, uh, it was dealing with the act of divorce. And now a lot of these films are dealing with the aftermath of divorce. So it's kind of trying to tap into that fear that a lot of young boys and girls had about new stepmom and new stepdad. Unfortunately, it kind of dabbles in this cliche of evil stepfather. And my main problem with the movie is that Terry Garr gets top billing. And yet there is not one scene where she's compelled to own up to the fact that her new boyfriend who she fell for is an abusive dick she is just blind to it and then at the very very end she changes her mind she's just very vapid and that bothers me i'm somewhat with you uh i get terry gar in this movie i really do because the we get that stuff at the beginning about the husband coming back the guy who left and we see that his life has been great after the divorce and hers is not she hasn't sustained a relationship i think there's a real sadness to terry gar in the film we don't get a lot of films where terry gar is front and center and, and kind of a lead Her performance and- is fantastic i just feel like either they didn't write two or three extra scenes to flesh her out, or they did and they just cut them. I just think she's so thinly drawn, that's all. I agree with you that Christopher Collin gives a very good young uh, lead performance. I think Corey Haim is terrific in this. This is the younger brother. And what's interesting about Corey Haim in this is I just read a, an article about Brad Renfro and about how the system kind of failed that kid because – when they cast him, they wanted a kid who was rougher for real. They didn't want a kid that they had to like teach to be that way. So they went looking for troubled kids who had had problems at school and had disciplinary issues. And they then didn't really take care of him. They dropped him into that system and they treated him like an adult at the age of 12. And when I look at performances from young actors who are really mature or who are really adult in some way, I wonder, you know, who was paying attention to this kid? Corey Haim is like a 25-year-old in this movie, and he's 12 or 13. It does not come across as an act. It comes across as this is a little kid who talks like this, who is this, who they found and they just put in the film. They both come across to me as really troubled kids dealing with their mom crumbling. And I like that about the film. Uh, there's some other really good young cast in this. Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker plays Christopher Collins' girlfriend in it. And in small doses, very funny, Robert Downey Jr. It's absolutely terrific. Drew, we need to do, maybe we should do a, a bonus episode just charting the different wardrobes of the Robert Downey Jr. character <laughs> in the 80s. Because yeah. he's always got like long coat, spiky hair, dark sunglasses, white shirt. It always feels to me like he showed up in what he wanted to wear as the character and then just wore the director down to where the director finally went, whatever, Robert, it's fine. Firstborn, decent, not great, but not bad. And I'll also say this, this is the first time since they've started giving them out where I feel like the PG-13 is exactly right. This feels like what that rating should be. All right, now, Drew, let's move on. I... Like most cineasts, I'm a huge Sidney Lumet fan. I love Sidney Lumet. So when I sat down for a light comedy directed by Sidney Lumet that I had never seen, I was like, oh, here we go. This will be great. You know, took about 10 minutes for me to want to turn off Garbo Talks. Why would a grown man quit a great job to become a delivery boy? Credit Garbo. What makes him crash New York's most exclusive celebrity retreats? Even walk on water, all for the chance to reach a star. I've got to talk to her. There is no Garbo here. This guy has got the best reason in the world, his mom. My mother is dying. She wants to meet Garbo. 
It's Ron Silver and Ann Bancroft in Garbo Talks. It feels like, and I don't know Larry Grusin. I know nothing about him. He's the guy who wrote it. It feels like a love letter to someone's mom, a very specific love letter to a very specific mom. And it feels like whoever that dude is, his mom was, to put it politely, a fucking handful. Anne Bancroft plays a ostensibly outlandish and a lovable and bombastically crazy, adorable woman who eventually discovers she has a brain tumor and is dying. And her final wish is that she wants to have Greta Garbo visit her. So her son runs all over New York City trying to see if he can't track down the reclusive, legendary silver screen icon. And it's a bunch of shtick and it's never funny. There's nothing there. I'm befuddled by this whole thing. I've never had this experience. Watching the movie, Ron Silver's wife shows up, there's two, three scenes, third scene comes up, and she's talking, and it cuts to an angle, and it's the first time of that angle, and I'm like, holy shit, is that Carrie Fisher? Even when he has people on screen, Harvey Firestein is in the film, even when these people show up and they're interesting people, I don't know what anybody's doing in the film. Nobody seems like they know what they're doing in the film. The only person that has any character to play is Bancroft, but Bancroft's character is so phony and so obnoxious. Oh, God. Yeah, whatever. All right, now let's move on to another misfire from a very reliable director, George Roy Hill, adapting Jean Le Carré. Diane Keaton is... The Little Drummer Girl. An international best-selling thriller is now a motion picture that explodes off the screen. Diane Keaton. The Little Drummer Girl. Rated R. Yeah, this is not a good movie. Now, this is another one where I sat down feeling like George Roy Hill, Butch Cassidy, The Sting, lots of good films. I love Diane Keaton, even when she's miscast, as she is here, maybe the most miscast ever. Yeah. She's still usually interesting. In this one, I, I hate to say it, but she's grating. Okay, so set aside the politics for a moment, because I don't grasp all the nuance of modern Middle Eastern policy, much less the late 70s. And it took me a little while to even get my head around what I think the hook is supposed to be. Basically, you got to remember at the time how fucking hated Jane Fonda was for the Vietnam stuff. This is what if Jane Fonda got co-opted into being a terrorist? Oh, that's the movie. That's I think that's what they're trying to make. Diane Keaton plays a self-important actress who is enlisted by Israel, I believe, to act as a counter agent and woo a man they need information from. Yeah, that's that's the most stripped down version of it. Yes. And it's Paris Hilton. Like it should be a a vacuous dum dum who thinks I'm worldly and I'm political and I'm and at least the way this is written, I feel like that's what this is set up as and Diane Keaton the Biggest problem with her, and it's not a problem, is that she's too smart for this. She really is too um, aware. And so I don't really buy that she's as behind the ball as this character is supposed to remain throughout this film, where she's really never ahead of anybody else. Everybody else has the game going, and Charlie is just kind of being 
dragged along like a dummy. I, I generally look past 80s fashion and hairstyles because, you know, that's just whatever. You got to deal with that. Diane Keaton looks ridiculous in this movie. She's running around the Middle East in these giant puffy costumes, and she looks like she has a small poodle on her head with this curly perm. And I think the main problem is George Roy Hill is, it, is at his best when he's dealing with fun and characters. This movie is never fun, and the characters are all gray and dull. Yeah, I, it's it's a disaster. Uh, right now, Chamu Park is in the middle of a uh, miniseries adaptation of this novel that's airing on Amazon or the BBC or somewhere. I haven't seen any of it, but I have to imagine it's worlds better than this. This is just an inert adaptation. Anyway, let's move on to an obscurity that I had known about my whole life, had no interest in because I generally don't like country music, but ended up really liking it. Alan Rudolph's Songwriter. Songwriter. We used to take the story of two great friends in a bad old business. What the hell is wrong with you? Nothing a million dollars won't fix. Chris Christopherson as Blackie. The working girl's favorite. Willie Nelson is Doc. Well, you know, next party we have, we ought to get us a valet. A valet with a mallet. They didn't get mad. They got even. Ta-da! Now they're doing the driving. Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson in Songwriter. Also starring Leslie Ann Warren, Rip Torn, and Melinda Dillon. I like this movie so much. Yup, Chris Christopherson and Willie Nelson as country singers who are getting both getting screwed over by different parties. So they frequently work together and, and sign each other to labels and write songs for each other to keep their heads above water. You also have Rip Torn as an oily bastard. I love Rip Torn in this. I love Rip Torn in this. Yep. And Melinda Dillon, who represents something important in the film. I, I really like this movie, and not just because a lot of it was shot in Austin. The last shot of this movie should be a favorite for anybody who lives in Austin. It got me emotional. Like, I, it's a beautiful last shot. This movie was originally meant to be directed by Steve Rash off Under the Rainbow. And he left for whatever reason. And Alan Rudolph off of Choose Me was hired. And... I, I think he did a great job. This movie is actually Oscar nominated. How do you like that? My guess is Leslie Ann Warren, who I think was already on the film, may have been one of the things that helped push that over was, oh, well, I just worked with this director and he's fucking great. And Willie went through a lot of this. Willie is one of those guys who's been around for so long and has been a songwriter, has been an artist, has been a producer, has worked in pretty much every level of the music industry. Not including greatest hits, compilations, or live albums, Willie Nelson has recorded 68 studio albums. Yeah. So this stuff feels to me drawn from life, not like, hey, this is I'm doing my life, but definitely drawn from experience. And there is a loose and funny uh, sort of vibe to it that I think Rudolph gets. I was worried at the beginning um, because it's a little choppy right at the start. You're like, I like these characters, but what is this movie about for the first 20 minutes or so? And then it settles and and really it settles into the idea that he has screwed up so badly now that this guy, this one dude owns everything except for just a couple of little pieces. That's Dick Serafian, writer-director Richard Serafian. Oh, he's terrific in it. He's the right menace. He's the right guy to sort of be the thing that's driving them to come up with this scheme that they come up with. And then when Leslie Ann Warren finally shows up and sings, I always forget how much I love Leslie Ann Warren. She has some moments when they're like trying to sign her 
And she's very humble about, oh, I'm not a star. So-and-so is a star. In most movies, you're like, oh, she's going to turn out to be a duplicitous sneak. In this movie, you're like, I love this character. There's this relationship that develops where she has to become the songwriter of credit because Willie Nelson can't for tax reasons and money reasons. In a lot of mainstream comedies, that would be everything. The whole movie would be about, then there'd be all sorts of situations where, oh, it almost got uncovered. Oh, they had to keep, do it this way. Oh, they had to cover it up this way. That's in there, but it's not really about that. And it's not really about getting the contract back, although it is. And it's not about his relationship with his ex-wife, but it is. And I like that. It's so shaggy. And I think that Alan Rudolph ultimately took all this stuff that Willie Nelson wanted to do that was drawn loosely from life, and he found a way to make a real movie out of it. This film was an Oscar nominee. Chris Christopherson was nominated for Best Song. If Songwriter is a good example of taking a music artist's real life and turning it into a film, I would like to now examine the worst case scenario. McCartney. The mystery. The music. The movie. Paul McCartney. Give my regards to Broad Street. Rated PG. Okay. First off, I have very little patience for any of the Beatles' work outside of the Beatles. When they're together, I think the Beatles are pure musical beauty. Give my regards to Broad Street is a distillation of everything I don't like <laughs> about Paul McCartney. It is a movie, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul McCartney himself having a daydream in the back of a car about having a very normal day. And then every four or five scenes, there's a music video, and somebody will mention how this ex-con who works for Paul McCartney is missing and lost some very, very, very valuable music tapes and if the tapes don't show up, somebody's going to lose the music studio for some reason. Because Paul McCartney isn't already filthy, stupid, stinking rich by this point. This movie is Paul McCartney jerking off, looking at a picture of Paul McCartney. Come on, have a little humility. This is a 90-minute I Love Me. This is all him. You can't blame anybody else. If you hate this movie... Blame Paul McCartney, because this was a pet project of his. He wanted to do this. He designed this thing. He handpicked all the music for it. He, Drew, he, when you say pet project, that implies something that I've wanted to make for a very long time and means a lot to me. I don't think this was a pet project. It was. I think he had a meeting, no. and they threw this together in six hours. No, you're wrong. It was. That's That's what's terrifying, is this was something he thought about and really... I, there's so many choices in this thing that are so strange. I right away find something very off-putting about the fact that all the Beatles music that's in this movie is re-recorded Beatles music where Paul McCartney's like, yeah, I'm going to do my version of it now and um, uh, fuck everybody else. So I'm going to win the argument this time. He's doing yesterday by himself with Ringo on the drums. But here's what's nuts. It's not Ringo. Ringo's in the movie but Ringo wouldn't play on the Beatles tracks because he thought that was bullshit. Just there's choices all over this movie that are fucking mystifying. And I want to uh, name a few of them because I sat through this thing. Here's one. Uh, Paul McCartney is playing Paul McCartney in the movie. Linda McCartney is playing Linda McCartney in the movie. Ringo Starr is playing Ringo Starr in the movie. 
Ringo Starr's wife, Barbara Bach, is playing a reporter who comes to interview Ringo Starr, who's not really doing anything. And the witty dialogue between them, I'm going to do my favorite scene in the movie. Oh, God. She asks him three questions, and Ringo's response is, I don't know, I'm on drugs. And then it cuts to something else. I... I actually played that back. I was like, is that really the whole scene? Is that like is that the punchline? And somebody went, nailed it. Yeah, yeah, we're having a good time here, but can we have some straight <laughs> talk for a second? I, I want to ask you a serious question. Are you ready? <laughs> is Ringo Starr the luckiest man ever fucking born? <laughs> I'm on drugs. This is, all right, remember how we flipped out in our early episode about Beatlemania and how it was so shitty and tacky for other people to blah, blah, blah? This is almost in a way worse because it's him doing Beatlemania on his own stuff. <laughs> it is. We both made it to the end of this movie. If you don't support our Patreon, you're a criminal. <laughs> I saw the Ralph Richardson scene and give my regards to Broad Street, which means I'm doing my job, man. I'm showing up. Anyway, let's move on. We're just beating a piece of shit down. All right, Drew, now let's move on to a not very good film starring an actor I know we both have a lot of affection for. Let us discuss Joe Beth Williams as the American Dreamer. Kathy Palmer has everything a woman could want. A home, a family, and a secret identity. Ryan. Rebecca Ryan. She thinks she's a character in a book. I told you everything. You'd be dead before you knew it. Why is she starting to make sense? Joe Beth Williams, Tom Conti, American Dreamer. The poster makes it look like it is a even-handed Joe Beth Williams, Tom Conti co-starring thing. We do not discuss the star of Ruben Ruben on my podcast, sir. It's her movie, and uh, you and I talked a little bit about this. I don't think it would be fair to say that this is a ripoff of Romancing the Stone, because I think the turnaround would have been so quick that it would have been very hard for them to have written this, gotten it shot, and in theaters if it was genuinely just ripped off. But I have no doubt that this thing got greenlit because Romancing the Stone was a hit. As we mentioned, the great Joe Beth Williams, hot off of Poltergeist, a housewife who likes to write. She enters a contest. She wins and is given uh, as a prize a trip to Paris to meet the author of her favorite spy novels. Then she goes without her husband because he's a fucking dummy. She gets hit by a car, wakes up, and believes she is Rebecca Ryan, star of the aforementioned spy novels. And when she is in spy mode and vamping it up, Joe Beth Williams is having some fun. You can see the actor who is normally either kind of a quiet mom or, or a serious, like, officious kind of person in, in a lot of films. Here, you could see her having fun playing broad comedy. Yeah, you know who's not funny? Rick Rosenthal. Rick Rosenthal, we mentioned earlier, he directed Halloween 2, which I love, and Bad Boys with Sean Penn, which I also love. And this was his, I guess, big step up. I just don't, they don't make movies like this anymore where it's kind of a grown up adventure and it's modestly sized. And, you know, it's funny between this and Thief of Hearts, there are a lot of movies this month about sort of housewives who are. Say it right. Thief of Hearts. Okay. Um, the housewife who is dissatisfied and wants something more. And, 
Now, here's my question about Jobeth Williams in this film. How old would you say her character is supposed to be in this film? 30. Because, you know, this is a couple of years after Poltergeist. She's... She's got two young boys, like 12 and 8. I mean, she could be mid-30s even. Like, it's... Why are we discussing her age? This is so wrong. No, because it becomes important <laughs> in Teachers later. We're going to talk about Teachers later, which has one of the weirdest casting things that we, we will see this month involving her. And in this movie, she feels like this is Jobeth Williams. She's playing a mom. She's age appropriate is the point. I do think that ultimately, if you're going to do a spy comedy, make the action stuff pay off. And Rosenthal doesn't pull the action side of it off or the comedy side off. So it, neither one of them feels like they land. So I don't know what the movie is. If you took this same exact film and pulled out Tom Conti, and put in just just about any other actor. He's just so, bleh, there's nothing there. I don't like him. <laughs> but Drew, do you know who I am a fan of, despite not liking his films in my youth? Uh, would that be the one, the only Jim Jarmusch? Yes, let us discuss his second feature film, Stranger Than Paradise. I put a spell on you. I saw Down by Law at probably 18. Didn't get it, didn't like it, and I kind of got bugged when, you know, everyone loves Jarmish and I didn't get it. And I think at 18, I didn't get Jim Jarmish. At 40-something, I definitely get Jim Jarmish. <laughs> there is a hipster absurdism that I loved Repo Man the first time I saw it. I loved Stranger Than Paradise the first time I saw it. And it's the same kind of, oh, that's a different language. Yeah, that feels like more what I'm interested in. A young woman from Hungary comes to America and ends up staying with her cousin for 10 days because the woman she was supposed to stay with is in the hospital. He doesn't want her there. It's a weird relationship. She leaves. Then they go see her again, and they go on a weird road trip. That's it. My experience with this was I didn't get to see it theatrically, uh, but it played Cinemax I kind of knew what it was. I was interested in it. I tried watching it, bounced off of it about 25 minutes in, went back to it the next day, tried watching it again, bounced off of it about 40 minutes in, but I needed to go back and watch it. So the third time I tried, it clicked and I started laughing. It's like hearing a weird story and you don't know if you really like it, but you're definitely interested to hear the end. <laughs> I have the same experience sometimes with music. It happened to me when I heard... Head Like a Hole by Nine Inch Nails the first time. The first time I heard it, my ear went, nah, what? No. And then I went, wait, play it again. And this was the same way. I had to play it three times to get through the movie. And then the third time, it clicked so hard that I was like, I knew something was there and I couldn't get my head around it yet. And it was when I realized it's really funny. Because there's nothing in it that cues you this is a comedy the way normal comedies play. Richard Edson destroys me. He makes me laugh so hard. And I love this. This is just a film nerdy thing. But the way this was shot was Jim Jarmusch collected a lot of what they call raw ends. When other films were shooting, you end up with little bits and pieces of unexposed film left over. So he took all those little bits and pieces of unexposed film. And the reason this film is 
paced the way it is is because they would just shoot however much film they had and do a scene. And so it's got this weird comic rhythm. They don't build the jokes in any traditional sense, but the relationships between Willie, played by John Lurie, and his best buddy, Eddie, Richard Edson's character, and then Ava, the uh, cousin from Hungary, just the relationship, the way they talk to each other, the way Willie and Eva talk to each other makes me laugh and laugh. The way she's obsessed with screaming Jay Hawkins music. It's extremely well observed. It, you know, it's a cliche to say they talk the way normal people do, but they talk the way dry, clever people normally do. <laughs> like, and Drew, you and I, you know, we've covered a lot of festivals together and we've seen Stranger Than Paradise looks like a lot of films you and I would see at Toronto or Sundance, but it didn't in 1984. Yeah. No, it must have been thrilling. Like, it, especially because you look at what is lined up against it this month. That is such a shock to the system that, yeah, it must have felt new. Would you call this the, the gateway for Jarmish? Oh, 100%. I fell so hard in love with him here that every film became a little mini event. And it's because Stranger Than Paradise hooked me so hard. And I love John Lurie still. I think John Lurie is one of the weirdest, but most authentic. Uh, Lurie is the real deal. And I think he and, and Jarmusch have lasted as long as they have because they mean it. It's not just a hipster pose. It's not just empty attitude. It's he loves these characters. He loves these people. Yep. One of the best indie films of the decade. And my advice would be if you delve into Jim Jarmusch and he doesn't float your boat, try again in five years. Uh, we also both harbor a strong affection for Mr. Bill Murray. And boy, has he had a great decade so far, Drew. Stripes cemented him as a commercial force. Tootsie showed that he could show up and play in somebody else's uh, sandbox. Caddyshack showed that even when he just showed up for a small role, he could walk away with a movie. And then Ghostbusters, of course, proved movie star. Ghostbusters, though, also got us this next movie because he would not make Ghostbusters until Columbia agreed to finance a dream project of his. And we all know how dream projects end up nine times out of ten. And that certainly played out again here with The Razor's Edge. I just take what I want. Ah! He broke tradition. He questioned authority. He gave up wealth and position to find the truth. And the people of his time never understood. Columbia Pictures presents Bill Murray. This isn't the old Mr. Sunshine. In The Razor's Edge. Do you remember Heartbeat, the film that we saw a couple of years back about Kerouac and Cassidy? Good little film. Like, I, I really, I kind of like that. This is the same writer-director. And so the way you talked about, you love to go into movies hoping for the best. I walked into this viewing like, I'm going to be the guy that's like, the razor's edge was worth it. This is not a bad movie. It's not a good movie, though. It's very, very mediocre. And I think the main problem, he's just a black hole in the middle of this movie. He's, it's just not a good performance. What they're trying to do with Bill here, or what I think he saw in this character, was the character he plays, Larry, is a guy who is sort of carefree, comes from a, a rich world, is he's got his whole life laid out, knows who he's going to marry, knows what he's going to do. He goes to war to be a medic. And while he's 
there, like sees terrible things, loses somebody, comes face to face with death and comes back changed and can't really settle back into life and then goes looking for answers about why he's dissatisfied and, and what the world means and what life means. That's that's the piece. And the idea of that Murrayism, you get the feeling that Bill drifts through life and whatever room Bill walks into, everybody's happy he's there. And it's always great that Bill Murray shows up. And that's sort of how we picture him. And at the beginning of this movie, I can see how that is appropriate for Larry. But there's no turn. That darkness never really settles in. You know who did surprise me is Brian Doyle Murray, who I think is terrific in the film as the guy who dies. Teresa Russell, also a, a fantastic in this movie. Denim Elliott, quite good. This is our second Catherine Hicks movie of the week, our second Teresa Russell movie of the week. Um, I thought Brian Doyle Murray did a really nice job as sort of the um, gruff asshole who when he dies, is supposed to then cast that shadow over the rest of Larry's life. And the problem is, as good as Brian Doyle Murray is, we don't feel the death in Larry's performance. We don't then feel it resonate through the rest of the movie, and it's got to, or none of it really makes any sense. Dinholm Elliott is fine, although he doesn't have a ton to do. Uh, James Keach is Bill Murray's best friend before the war who... He's the one who settles back into his life and manages to figure out how to put it all behind him where Bill can't. It's kind of a blank in the movie. There's two ways to look at a project like this. The cynical way is Bill Murray wanted to be a, a more dramatic movie star, so he used his power to make this art film, for lack of a better phrase. Another way to look at it is maybe he just loved the book. And like now as a movie star, I have the ability to get this made. I do think that's what it is. I don't I'm not cynical about this. Like I said, I really can see how he would identify with the character before the war and think I'm the right guy to play that. And he is kind of charming. I can see why Catherine Hicks is like, oh, this guy's the best and he's always hilarious and he's so alive before the war. The problem is he's still kind of Bill Murray after all this stuff goes down and even when he's meant to be haunted, he's just kind of Bill Murray. And the actual plot gets really crazy dark. Um, after he leaves America, he ends up running into Teresa Russell's character again, and she is as broken as he is. And they start to heal each other, and then terrible things happen. And Catherine Hicks plays a real piece of garbage in this movie. And for the last 15, 20 minutes of this to pay off, that should be one of those scenes that when you see it, man, you never forget it. She breaks, he breaks, the audience breaks. And it's nobody's fault. It just didn't work. Like, it never congealed. As we all know, Bill Murray would slowly morph into one of the most unexpected, warm, funny character actors later in life. Just mm, 1984, I don't think he or the audience was quite ready for that. Hey, Drew, you know who makes movies that you want to hug Bill Forsyth. Let's just throw our arms around comfort and joy. What a delightful movie. And I remember liking it when I saw it in the 80s. And then having never seen it since, not remembering why. Same with Local Hero. is just I had a vague memory of... That's a good movie. And nothing really I could point to. Comfort and Joy is about a DJ who gets caught up in a feud between 
fighting uh, ice cream truck companies because there are different areas. And of course, there are criminal actions behind these ice cream companies, but it never gets too dark. And it's Scottish and it's charming and funny and it's based on human traits and foibles. And our hero is mainly driven by his uh, affection for this beautiful brunette. And that's how he gets embroiled in what is kind of a light comedic Yojimbo. It is so bananas, the left turns it takes. And there's a couple of movies that we're going to talk about. Uh, One is Into the Night, one is After Hours, which are movies where men just sort of end up adrift because they break. Finding worlds they didn't even realize could exist and get caught up in them. And they're very different films in the way they handle that, but they all kind of start from the same thing, which is just these guys break for some reason. You know who Bill Forsythe reminds me of? James L. Brooks. I started laughing at how he's putting the screws to this guy right away. Like, Forsythe is very good at finding little human ways to break his character. I also love that he uses Mark Knopfler for his score again. I love the the particular world that he creates. There's not many Scottish or Irish films that look like this. This film has a very unique feel. The world that it drops him into with all these ice cream trucks and the Italian families that are, it's really only one family uh, that is playing out this bizarre psychodrama that he ends up in the middle of. All of that is really refreshingly odd and different. How nice is it that after like 15 minutes, you're like, oh, I guess we're not going to get that generic stock Italian stereotype. No, not at all. Even the ostensibly bad characters are drawn with some heart. Patterson's performance as Alan Bird is kind of one of a kind. It is a really lovely, weird comedy lead. He is drowning. And and watching this guy, just I've got to figure out how not to drown is surprisingly funny and moving. I really love Comfort and Joy, and I, I don't think it's readily available right now, but man, it should be. You can't go wrong. Pick any Bill Forsyth movie. The guy has not made a bad film. Now let us move on to another very good director, Arthur Hiller, and one of his most average. It's Nick Nolte and the aforementioned Joe Beth Williams in Teachers. Our client is suing the school because he graduated, but he can't read or write. They're going to try to prove that John Calvin was knowingly promoted when, in fact, he should have failed. Gun! <laughs> This place is unbelievable. It's not a school anymore. It's a loony bin. Yes. You're crazy. You know that? I'm a teacher. Odd social issue dramedy from the director of the hospital, and they're clearly shooting for the same kind of institutional skewering. And I'm borrowing a note from some smart person who tweeted at me, the gentleman who wrote this is not exactly Patty Chayefsky. I'm not sure the guy who wrote this can spell Patty Chayefsky. There's a couple, There's a lot of Y's in there. Yeah, there's little fits and starts that work. Is this a scathing indictment of the educational system in America, or is it a sitcom with more subplots than it knows what to do with? Yes, both. It's trying to be all things to all audiences, and this is not what Hiller does well. It's adjacent to it, if he was doing the hospital version of this movie, it would have way more teeth. One thread in this is there is a guy who everybody calls Ditto, who is an older teacher who hands out Dittos and then reads his newspaper. And he dies at one point behind the newspaper and nobody realizes it for a while. 
this film doesn't really know what to do with that joke. They shoot that joke for like eight minutes. <laughs> but there's a really dark point to be made there. The other idea that I see how they're trying to lay the track is the only teacher in this movie who is any good or connected or who we see actually make progress with the classroom is a crazy person who's not an actual teacher who just wanders in off the streets because he wants to teach. As played by our beloved Richard Mulligan. And his scenes are not bad. It's just that I don't know if any of it's funny. And I do get the feeling they want it to be funny. On top of that, you have there's Alan Garfield in a just thankless role as a punished teacher who gets bitten on the hand viciously by Crispin Glover. And he is, his car is stolen. He's ridiculed. He's, and he's portrayed as like a whiner. He's just, what a thankless role that is. Then you have Ralph Macchio, fresh off the Karate Kid, as Crispin Glover's buddy and a hustler. And he befriends Nick Nolte, the only teacher who really gives a shit. Nick Nolte is old pals with Judd Hirsch, who is now an administrator who is used to be idealistic, but is now becoming more part of the machine. And Nolte's on his way to becoming like Judd Hirsch. He's burning out like him. Yeah. Uh, William Shallert as the principal. Guess what? Completely clueless. Uh, then you also have Laura Dern in a really unseemly subplot in which she has sex with the gym teacher, played by Art Natrano. That's like a third of the plots. It's all over the place. Now, here's here's why I brought up Joe Beth Williams' age on the American Dreamer thing. She shows up in this as the lawyer who is taking depositions for the lawsuit against the school. So she is a former student of Nick Nolte's, and it was said that she was 18 when she was his student, and that it was 10 years ago, which would make her 28 in this movie, which would make him... I'm not sure how old in this movie, <laughs> but the math made so little sense to me that I had to stop the movie at one point and go, wait a minute. How does the, the wait a minute. How, the, that doesn't work. What are you doing? Like, it's one of those. I love Joe Beth Williams. They just decided to cast Joe Beth. Williams. They didn't give a shit at what the character says about her age or anything else. It's so, of course, she can't just be the lawyer who is going up against the school board. She has to also fall in love with Nick Nolte, who then says to her something to the effect of you don't know what it's like to be a teacher until you walk down that hall totally naked you don't know how it feels and then in the big finale to prove that she does know what it feels like to be a teacher she is asked to strip naked and walk down the hall of a high school and boy is that a stupid moment yeah and it's it's one of those movies where clearly the soundtrack album uh was somebody's special project and they were just jamming songs in left and right whether they fit or not got some good tracks on that album dude there's some good songs good songs they some of them have nothing to do with anything you're watching on screen but okay all right now drew we got three movies left this episode one i know we both love one i think we're split on and a concert film for a band that I didn't like growing up. The Talking Heads, Stop Making Sense. A film that's being called the most inspired concert movie ever made. MTV presents the American release of the first full-length movie from The Talking Heads. Watch MTV for the theater listing in your city. The Talking Heads Stop Making Sense. We think it's about time that movies stop making sense. This is one of the best concert films I have ever seen. And even if you think you don't like the band, there's a good chance you will 
enjoy this marriage of music, teamwork, and subtle, brilliant filmmaking. What struck me most about this movie is the way the film opens with David Byrne taking the stage by himself, and he does a full song. Then they all slowly come out one at a time, and it, and it kind of builds to this big collaboration when, once they're all on stage together. You don't have to be a, a fan of this band to appreciate that. David Byrne definitely thought about staging this as a performance piece. The costuming is very dramatic, and it's not the kind of thing where at first you even realize how dramatic some of the choices are. But you're right, the the way he starts by himself and then each song adds a member to the stage setup until they finally reach Burning Down the House, which is awesome and an amazing performance. What really blows me away is he never stops moving in this thing. I can't even fathom the energy it takes to get through the performance that David Byrne gives in this thing. And then you look at like Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt, who are the backup singers, who are on stage for 90% of the thing. They're jogging, they're running, they're keeping up with him. They're And it's also laid back. It's like Demi's direction. You would think at this point in his career, whoa, I'm, I'm directing one of the hottest bands right now. Let me show off. Let me do like what Phil Juano is going to do with Rattling Home. You know, like, let me really show off. No, less is more. Simple is better. This particular band just shoot it and get out of the way and cut as seldom as possible. The big suit, is something that's been discussed, you know, in terms of the choice he makes. One of the reasons I love Gene Kelly and one of the things that Michael Jackson stole from Gene Kelly is Gene Kelly would always wear his shoes and his socks and his pants in a way that his ankles were very visible, which made his feet very visible, which made it very easy to see the dancing. Like he was very aware of the visual side of it. When he gets the big suit on and David Byrne starts dancing and he's doing that liquid sort of his body's made of rubber. He is so acutely aware of how that's going to read on film and how it reads in the theater. And it's such a wonderful performance moment for Jonathan Demme and for Jordan Cronenweth, who shot this thing. It must have been delightful because you have this collaborator who brings all these great ideas to the table. And then all you have to do is not fuck it up. And you're going to get something that's really wonderful and that endures. There's nothing about this that screams 1984 it is simply a fascinating live musical performance that could have been really any of about a dozen years. Your favorite band should earn a concert film this good. This movie is definitely David Byrne's personality, and it sets you up for how much of his personality is on display in True Stories. Can't wait. I can't wait for you and I to discuss one of our favorite filmmakers, controversial follow-up to Scarface, Drew, let us break down Craig Wasson's amazing performance. Wow! In Body Double. Don't blink. You are about to witness a crime of illusion. An act of deception. A vision of murder. Brian De Palma, Body Double. You can't believe everything you see. Rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. I've been waiting for this conversation. I've actually been waiting for the rewatch because I put it off specifically so that it would be fresh when we sat down to talk. It was skeezy back then, and it's problematic now. To me, this felt like, don't laugh, at the time, something mature. 
What did you think of Body Double when you were 16? I thought it was inventive and clearly lifted from many previous films, porny as hell, and fascinating. And I saw it probably 10 times when it hit home video. It's fascinating. There was a period where I was absolutely fascinated by De Palma. You and I watch movies differently, though. I I watch movies a lot. I will soak a movie up and I'll put something on. And especially when I was younger, I don't do it as much now. But when I was younger and I was really trying to break films down and, and figure out what it was that I thought about them, I would watch something over and over after I watched it the first time. And part of what I was interested in in this is how he is so clearly from the beginning showing you everything. He had just come off Scarface, one of the most excessive and over-the-top movies. He is always a button pusher. His next movie, not only does he have a blank check, but this is what he chooses to do. This is as De Palma as De Palma gets. You got to remember, part of the original idea here was to literally make an X-rated porn film for a studio where Holly Body would be played by Annette Haven, an actual porn actress, and you would see hardcore pornography in this movie. And that was what, to him, was the whole goal was, I'm going to break that wall down. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to make a studio pay for an X-rated movie. What a goal. Imagine that being like your big goal in life. When we talked earlier about the New York Ripper, what makes this any different than the New York Ripper? And I think it's a fair question because both films are insanely violent, overflowing with what I consider genuinely hateful misogynistic imagery, where there is something wired wrong in your head for some of these images. And De Palma is, though, as weird as it sounds, also playful. And that's what I find so weird about him, because he's as much a film critic as a filmmaker. And his films very much are about his reaction to Alfred Hitchcock's movies. And over and over, he is working through, hey, what about this idea? Hey, when I was watching Rear Window, I thought about this. Hey, when I was watching Vertigo, I thought about this. <clears throat> and uh, Body double, dress to kill, or blowout, which is the most Hitchcocky? I think this one steals the most directly. I think Blowout is the ideal version of it takes all the things that Hitchcock does well and does them well. I think this is the weird, rude, fart joke version of Hitchcock. There's something so infantile about the game he's playing here. One of the things that I find so amazing about Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo is that it's you take this guy who is the all-American ideal and the way that obsession eats at him and perverts him, that is great because you're corrupting this, this image. Whereas Craig Wasson... Eh. He's certainly not the hero. He's the main character, but he's a creep. He looks like a creep. If he looked like George Clooney and, and walked like Clooney, it'd be a totally different movie. And then it clicked the last time I saw it was he literally is doing creepy, pervy, not cool things. Okay, so the plot is he's an actor. He has claustrophobia. He's in an acting class and another actor notices this and starts talking to him and befriends him and then says, hey, man, I got to go out of town for a while. I need you to watch my house. Oh, and by the way, every night, if you look out the window at this time, there's a crazy strip tease. And there's a reason he tells him to look out that window. If you were sure that a woman across the way had been killed by a giant drill, 
surely you would just follow her all around L.A. Of course. That's it. It makes no sense at all. It's ridiculous. And it is hinged on the most preposterous coincidence that this guy would stumble into an acting class on the day that this guy would freak out and have this meltdown and reveal this psychological. (laughs) Right. So we're sitting there and I say, Drew, in order for us to pull off this heist. Somebody eventually has to come into this acting class who is not only claustrophobic and shows us, but has Tourette's syndrome and occasionally poops his pants when he hears a high pitched whistle. If I find that guy, this heist is on. All right, let's discuss some good stuff. Melanie Griffith. Yeah, terrific. Good job. Yeah, she she does everything she's supposed to do in the movie, and she's funny, and she's she plays a porn star, and she smartly brings a real lightness and energy and funniness to it. She's barely in this film. And I've always thought of this as Craig Wasson and Melanie Griffith's star in this movie. Nope. Deborah Shelton's probably in more of the film than Melanie Griffith is. You know who else has a small role in this movie? A mutual friend of ours and previous guest. Barbara Crampton. Yeah, it was very nice. I totally forgot that that was her. There was probably about a year and a half, maybe two year period in my life where I would have called this my favorite Brian De Palma movie. (laughs) Yeah, look, dude, when you're when you're 14, 15, the movie feels edgy and crazy, and you also haven't seen all of the movies that he's doing. So part of the fun of it is, as I've seen all the movies that Brian De Palma saw, I have little by little realized that he is Dr. Frankenstein. He is Quentin Tarantino. I really think the two of them are so closely related in technique. The only movie in the history of the world, to include a Frankie Goes to Hollywood video. And the entire Frankie Goes to Hollywood video. Um, Yeah, Stephen Burham, who I think is one of the best guys in terms of collaborating with uh, De Palma, I think did a great job shooting it, and it's a good Pino DiNaggio score. I'm a fan. It's trash. It's absolute trash, and it is genuinely just the slicker version of New York Ripper in some of the key ways. It's fairly indefensible. It's also eminently watchable. Now, Drew, let us close it out with maybe my favorite film of the year. It's an action film. It's a science fiction film. It's a horror film. It's a doomed romance. It's fucking brilliant. It's The Terminator. They come from another time. A machine wrapped in flesh. A soldier from a distant war. Both after a woman who holds the key to the future. One wants to kill her. The other must protect her. I'm here to help you. You've been targeted for termination. The Terminator. Your future is in his hands. The Terminator. Rated R. This film changed my world, man. I, um, I've, I've talked about Bill Roseman, my buddy. We had him on the show a little while ago. And we saw this opening weekend and flipped for it. We went back and we saw it. Every weekend it was there for the entire time it played, which was at least 15 weekends. You go back to this at any age and you look at it, and this is a transformative moment for sci-fi genre films. James Cameron, the impact he made really can't be overstated, and it is because of the raw, inventive power of both his screenplay and his direction. I think it is... Amazing that he lands the love story as well as he does. That that to me is, as an adult, that to me is like the icing on the cake. And, you know, 
it's not just icing. It's particularly good icing. It really earns that heart. It's not, you wouldn't call it a, a warm movie at any point, but it in those very brief moments, it earns that rooting interest for Linda Hamilton and Michael Bean. Absolutely. I have a very distinct memory of the Terminator because it was one of the only VHS tapes that my Uncle Mickey had. It was my mom's little brother. And my Uncle Mickey was a little bit weird. He had fought in Vietnam and he came back and he was skittish. He was a little odd. He had one of the first VHS players and he didn't own many tapes, but he had a real copy of the Terminator. And I probably hung out with him for a couple of years every other weekend. And we must have watched that movie, no lie, 25 times. A couple of years later, my Uncle Mickey uh, moved to Arizona. He was roofing and he fell off a roof. He became addicted to painkillers and unfortunately took his own life several years later. I don't have many memories of my Uncle Mickey, but this movie is just him. Every time I think of this movie, I think of him, and it just makes me happy. Flawlessly executed for what it is. There are effects in it that don't really hold up, that didn't hold up at the time, like that weren't particularly great, weren't pulled off well, but that were so inventively attempted that the film just felt like as big a lightning bolt moment as it was when I saw The Road Warrior the first time. This is what everybody should be doing. This is how good it can be. This is everything that a small, low-budget science fiction action film should be. And it was unlikely. Arnold Schwarzenegger was essentially a joke by this point. Conan had come out. The sequel had come out and, and pretty much driven a nail through his career. This was the perfect James Cameron, he understood the potential. He looked at him as an actor and went, I get it. Play to your strengths. And man, very few films does Schwarzenegger get to play to his strengths. I know he's a sweet guy. I know he can be funny. But as far as using that imposing figure and that face and that voice, it is an excellent performance. There was no ad campaign for this film. This was released by Hemdale. This was released by Nobody. Nobody knew what the hell this was. When we went and saw it, we went and saw it because we went and saw everything that opened at my friend's theater. Oh, dude. Just because it was free. So we went, okay, great. If you're lucky in life to have 10 or 12 moments for a movie to just click and you go, oh, this is for me. This was made for me. Being in a theater where nobody knew what was coming, nobody knew what it was, and that I'll be back scene played. Holy shit, what a moment. And the relentlessness of this movie. I had no idea action films could do this. So that last act, every time he gets up and keeps coming, every single time you think this thing is over and it keeps coming. We were standing for part of it. It was so exciting the first time we saw it. It truly was a transformative experience in the theater. This is a phenomenal action film. It's a sci-fi movie. It gives you lots of cool hardware and lots of interesting things to think about. And as a horror movie, like you touched on, by like halfway through the movie, around somewhere around the disco scene, you're like, this is similar to Jason, who will not stop. You start to be terrified for Linda Hamilton. The editing makes it feel like, run, every single scene, you're like, move, move, keep moving, walk, walk, go, run. It's, it's just so much fun to watch. I absolutely love this movie. And I like the sequel, but do not even get me started on how superior this is to T2. When I was at a Christmas party one year, and in the corner, out of the way where nobody was really bothering him, it was just James Cameron standing by himself. And I'm like, oh, man, this is it. 
I'm going to take this opportunity. And I walked over. It's a little lit. It was late in the Christmas party. He was a little feeling no pain, and I was a little feeling no pain. It was the best conversation I've ever had with James Cameron. I've talked to him probably 10 times over the course of my life. The best conversation. And he was loose and funny and felt like he would talk about anything. So we kind of had that conversation where we talked a little bit about Avatar, and we talked a little bit about True Lies, and we talked about this thing. And I brought up to him that uh, The Terminator had been the first R-rated movie I showed Toshi and Alan. And he started laughing. He goes, really? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you know, the first time we submitted that to the MPA, the same cut that you saw in theaters, same cut you just showed your kids, uh, it got an X. And then we resubmitted it, and they gave us an X again. And then I resubmitted it, and I begged them, and they gave me an R. So uh, congratulations. Good parenting. And I started laughing. (laughs) And I was like, okay, well, uh, no, I did not know that. He goes, yeah, we got an X. Uh, well done. That's funny. And did you uh, did you talk to him about the abyss? A uh, little bit, yeah. And he was talking about the fact that he had two more underwater things he was going to go do before he started doing uh, Avatar. And then that was all going to be underwater. He's like, I'm basically underwater for the rest of my life at this point. Well, to wrap up, The Terminator turns out to be a pretty good film after all. So often when you go back to especially low budget films, the budget hinders them later or you look at them and you're like, oh, but time has marched on. The Terminator remains one of the greats and unassailably well made. Hey, so um, next time George Burns is back and he's bringing George Burns with him. And oh, shit, that can't be good. John Cryer is going to stalk Demi Moore. Uh, We've got Unknown Comics and Killer Pigs and not one, but two Larry Cohen films. Chuck Norris kicks off a really crappy franchise. Nancy Allen goes undercover and Santa knows that you've been naughty. All that plus Supergirl and Freddy Krueger. It's November of 1984. (laughs) I'm on drugs!